Let's pray. Heavenly Father, teach us not to be afraid of the law. In Jesus' name, amen. There are moments in each of our lives where we have to sort through the past and decide what to keep and what to throw away. Much of it happens in our mind. We don't have unlimited mental storage, and the older we get, the more we have to decide what's worth remembering and what's not. But there are other times where we have to go through our parents' home after they're gone, and we have to decide what to keep and what to throw away. And then there's the last day of work when we retire. What's worth taking home? What belongs to the company and what can just be thrown away? I know they always walk out with a really small box, but at least in my case, it's not quite that simple. And then moving across town or to the mainland or beyond, what's actually worth paying to move? I want you to think about an event where you had to play the sorting game, all the history and memory before you. What did you discover that you didn't know before? What, what memory was suddenly restored? What seemingly random object did you discover? And, and you're holding it and you're saying, why did I keep this? Jesus starts off the gospel with, well, you've heard that it was said to our ancestors. In the King James, it's, I know you heard it said. Both cast a tinge of doubt. That while we all know what Jesus is about to say, we may not know the whole truth. Think of all the things that you have been passed down by and, you know, things we accepted as truth, but then discovered that they may not quite be as true as we thought they were. Turns out if you drop a penny off the Empire State Building, it won't kill anyone. Oh, I don't doubt it would shock them and hurt them, but it won't kill because of the maximum velocity that it's going to achieve. Mythbusters prove that. A gum passes right through you. Does not stick in your stomach for months and months and months. Hmm, wish I'd known that when I was a kid. You cannot see the Great Wall of China from space, at least without magnification. And my personal favorite, it turns out you do not swallow an average of eight spiders a year. Unless, of course, you have a bug right there on your tongue. The spider has no reason to jump into your mouth. And by the way, if your mouth is open, chances are you're snoring, which means the vibrations will cause the spider to go elsewhere. If you discover a thick stack of letters all bound together with twine, which gives you an idea that it's probably old, and the return address has your mom's maiden name, and uh, it's written in cursive, and maybe has little hearts or other symbols of affection on it. What would you expect to find when you read them? Could it be different than what they told you? Or, or maybe different than you remember? Do you think you would discover things about them that would surprise you? The Ten Commandments are just ten of the roughly 365 rules and laws in the Old Testament. I say roughly because there are some duplicates, some explanations, and some other just, you know, things that happen. And, and so it's really kind of hard to get an exact number. But people love the number 365 because they say, well, there's one for every day of the year. It, it, except during leap year, of course. Now, these rules and regulations are not, with all due respect to Captain Jack Sparrow, guidelines. They are laws, plain and simple. And whether you get caught or not doesn't matter. If you break one or a hundred of them, you're guilty. I need to clarify something here because as a nation and as a society, we don't see things that way so much anymore. Guilt and innocence are not about whether you did something or didn't do something any longer. 
And we have made the judicial system so complicated, bloated, and subjective that when you add social media's reporting on such things, we no longer have a sense of truth, justice, in the American way, as uh, Superman would have us hold on to. We need to table that discussion, though, on how and why for today, be not because it doesn't need to be argued, but because we just don't have enough time. Last week, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For the Pharisees and Sadducees, those were fighting words. For the disciples and the least of these, they were words of hope. Our gospel lesson is a series of six responses. Six, I know you heard it was said. There are moments where Jesus clarifies what God said versus what the church had passed down through its teaching. Jesus plays the contrarian, and his words are antitheses, antitheses, antitheses. I'll let you pronounce it. Webster defines it, though, as a rhetorical contrast of ideas by means of a parallel arrangement of words, clauses, or sentences. How many of you have discovered, despite your best intentions, that you misunderstood what someone asked you to do? Uh, you thought you knew it. I mean, you were positive, uh, you know. One of my favorite MASH episodes, by the way, is where the doctors are disarming a CIA bomb. And as Colonel Blake reads the instructions, he says, and carefully cut the wires leading to the clockwork fuse at the head. And you hear this snip, snip as the doctors cut the wires. And then Colonel Blake says, but first remove the fuse. And then, of course, they have to run and it blows up. Oops. A little better organization of thoughts was needed there. I'm sequential, you know how it goes. Sometimes it's a cultural misunderstanding. Sometimes there is a politeness factor where someone says yes because they don't want to hurt your feelings, but they really mean no. And sometimes we pass down from generation to generation a truth that is anything but true. And Jesus begins each teaching with, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Now Jesus starts with the commandment, something everybody agrees on, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not commit adultery. Uh, then he adds the common accepted understanding, as taught by the church for generations. Again, something that everybody knows and agrees on. And then he adds the kicker. But I say to you. My first reaction is Jesus has some gall. Uh, then I realized I, I wasn't sure what it actually meant to have gall, so I looked it up. Turns out gall is a growth on the surface of a plant that is caused by an insect disease, fungus, or injury. And so when we use the term, it's saying the person we're referring to has been injured, infected, bitter, diseased, and has a big bump on them, and they don't like it. And, and it's causing them to become angry. It's become, they're upset. In this case, the gall is the stuff the church added to God's word that is not what God meant. And so it's Jesus who's angry and, and because of the gall that we put on things that God gave us. When Jesus says, I say unto you, he is putting himself in the place of God. He's not only interpreting the word, but declaring what God said, and therefore what people must believe. And here is where our faith is challenged, because before we can go on with Jesus' teachings, we have to ask ourselves, if I am saved, and by the way, I hope none of you have any doubts, because this is why Jesus does what Jesus does, but if I am saved, how am I saved? Am I striving to embrace, not just in my head, okay, with ration, uh, rationale and reason, but in my heart and in my soul that I am saved by grace through faith and this is not my work, it's the gift of God. And notice I said striving to embrace because if you're an average Christian, there are days 
that you totally get it and you get that you're saved by grace. And other days when you really struggle with it, either because you're trying to prove yourself or um, because you're just not sure you're good enough. But if we live under grace and believe it's really God's job and God's gift to save us, then what Jesus is about to say isn't going to scare us, even though, to be honest, it's about as radical as it gets. When Jesus says, you shall not kill and you shall not commit adultery, a lot of people breathe a sigh of relief and say, great, not guilty, yes. Now, there's another group that begins a series of explanations. Yes, I killed someone, but using Arnold Schwarzenegger's excuse from True Lies, but they were all very bad men. Except some of my dearest friends, for those who wear a uniform, whether it's the military or law enforcement, it is not always that cut and dried. But they know why they did what they did and who they did it for. And they take some solace from that. Others begin responding to the second. I know you heard it said. And they say, yeah, it's true. I flirted, sent a few emails, sent a few letters, but I actually never did anything. And that leaves a group who are convicted by their words. No excuses, no wiggling. They stand there saying, guilty. And Christians prefer things to be that cut and dry because it means most of the time, since they haven't killed or committed adultery, they have nothing to be forgiven of except maybe for a few minor petty offenses. And they're able to point their finger, yeah, at everybody else. That's when Jesus goes on to say, you know, if you're angry with your brother, If you have looked at a woman lustfully and suddenly all of our self-righteousness goes off the rails because only someone who has never ever been around another person, I mean, never had any interaction with anybody else could, could ever say that, well, they were innocent. So what are we to do with such statements? I mean, it's a lot easier if I stick with the old understanding because then most of us can get some sleep. Yep, haven't murdered, haven't committed adultery today. Good night, Jesus. But if we go with the new, I tell you, All of us are going to have to come, well, we're going to have to have a come to Jesus moment because it's not just those sinners that we like to gossip about who are actually sinners. And here's why I love Jesus. I want you to notice he doesn't point fingers, doesn't put his finger on the smoke button. He doesn't tell everyone they're going to hell. Instead, he says, you know, before you get to church, go make peace with your brother or sister. Then come and make your offering. Now, There were two primary types of offerings in the Old Testament. The first was a response to God's love, a tithe, gifts set apart to say thank you. And this offering is just because you are a child of God. The second offering is a sin offering. It's when someone says, I need to make things right. In the story of Zacchaeus with Jesus, after his encounter with Jesus, he sets out to repay all of the people that he cheated. Now, this act of restitution isn't what forgave him. No, all of what he did was in response to God's love. See, both type of offerings are out of love. 2 Corinthians says every offering needs to be from the heart, which which is why whenever we take a special offering or encourage you to give money to something, um, we want you to give from your heart. We want you to support the things that you are passionate about. We don't expect everyone to give an offering to all the things that we have because we know that every one of you, well, you see things differently. And so if I support my passions and you support yours, we get to support a lot broader base of people and and organizations that need some help. Now, Jesus says, if you're on your way to worship and you are either so guilty or so angry that you miss the exit or almost run a red light or for a moment can't remember where you're going, he says you need to stop and you need to take care of things before you keep going. 
You can't just show up at church, throw some money in the offering box, and tell yourself that everything's going to be okay. Either God is going to forgive you or that God is going to make the person who you're angry at, you know, he's going to force them into something that they're going to have to come and say they're sorry. It doesn't work that way. Never has, never will. Jesus said, go to your brother or sister and make things right. Then go to church. Your offering becomes a response, not a bribe for God to fix things. God's law tells us a lot about himself and how he views our life. The law is all about taking care of one another. It's about respecting one another. It's about working with one another, even though we're very different people. It draws boundaries. It points out that relationships are easily broken. And God says if we break these laws, bad things are going to happen. And I need you to note, God isn't doing these bad things to us. These things, these bad things are the result of our actions or inactions, our failure to be human to and with one another. Sometimes we don't think about it, but you know when God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, there was already a covenant in place. A covenant is an agreement. In this case, it was a bereave, meaning it's a one-sided covenant. In other words, God said, I'm going to do this, and, and it wasn't about whether we did anything or not. But this is the Abrahamic covenant where he said, I'm going to make Abraham into a great nation. And by the way, you as my people are going to have a place to live. And through Abraham, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And by the way, that's a, a direct prophecy of Jesus. So when you combine this covenant with God's promise to Adam and Eve that a child would be born who would crush the head of Satan and redeem God's people, yeah, it's the aha moment. God had already promised to save his people before he gave them the commandments. It's a backwards process. God says, you're saved. You're my people. I love you. Now, here are some rules for your life. In other words, since you are saved, since you are already my people, you can love me and love one another because you've got nothing left to prove or earn. The commandments were always more about God and His design for our life than about us. In confirmation, we teach the students that the law is a mirror, a curb, and a rule. Now, the law reflects how well we're doing taking care of one another. And when you look in the mirror, you know, it reflects exactly who you are, not, you know, who you say you are or want to be. Um, a curb isn't going to stop you from driving on the sidewalk. It, it'll give you a big bump and tell you you're not on the street anymore. You're on the sidewalk and probably need to rethink it and get back on the street. And uh, if we draw our life next to the straight line that's God's law, uh, yeah, well, as straight as we think we're going, um, we discover that we're all over the place. And then to drive his point home, that he loves us, and heaven isn't going to be the same without us. God sends his son to die for us because our tendency is to choose wrong over right, sin over righteousness, death over life. God chooses life for us even when we choose everything else. And so when Jesus says, ever been angry with someone? Ever wanted something that wasn't yours? Ever skipped church? Ever tried to bribe God? And by the way, when he asks those, it's their rhetorical questions, meaning that we, he really doesn't want us to answer. He already knows the answer. He points out, you're still in a relationship with God. It's not just two parties in a contract. It's a relationship. And when you look into God's eyes and heart, you see that this isn't about making you feel bad or singling you out as a bad person, about condemning you until you feel so bad that you just have nowhere else to go. It's about reminding you that none of it was ever about you being perfect in the first place because it's just not a possibility. 
you are and were and shall be forgiven. We will spend our whole life trying to figure out exactly what that means because no matter how many times I say you're forgiven, no matter how many times you forgive me, to be bluntly honest, we're not totally able to, to figure out what it should feel like, what it should look like, and, 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 and then how do we respond? The Bible isn't exactly a bundle of old letters with cursive writing and our mom's maiden name and the return address, but to be honest, it's close. If we read God's word as a love letter, God's deepest and most sacred thoughts to a world that was far away, and yet more than anything, he wanted them back with him. It'll be a lot like that stack of letters from our mom to our dad or that yearbook with all those crazy autographs and the things we say, what did she mean here? What did he mean by saying that? It's like pictures in the box of the diaries that open up a whole new world. It opens our hearts and eyes to a truth that is beyond anything that we thought was true. See, we thought about these things and we heard these things were passed down from person to person, generation to generation but we never bothered to fact check them. It turns out, by the way, if we want to know about God and what he thinks and, and who he is, it turns out the world isn't the best source. He is. God speaks. We're blessed to hear him. And the truth sets us free. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.